You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Chuba Sopoiskin. Um, we start off today offering our Nahoma to someone who has been a very close friend of our podcast and our Shiurim, Rabbi Arya Clapper, the Dean of the Center for Modern Torah Leadership a Mechaber, a Dayan, a Poisek, um, and, uh, and someone who I have come to appreciate and cherish as a as a friend over the recent Ptira of his father. Uh, he's going to be dedicating the Shir uh, to Rabbi Yaakov, and the Rav Shlomo, the Shalom, so kind of Rocha. That's my father, so I thought it'd be appropriate to start uh, with a word for my father, that uh, that I think will try and build up the theme of what I want to accomplish in today's shir, and the goal is to have a first conversation to to gather data, as opposed to reach conclusions on the overall on the overall theme of the shir, which is to uh, to think about the proper relationship between uh, halacha and science. So I'm going to start with the Mishnah Rosh Hashanah. Uh, I assume you all have my screen now. Uh, Mishnah Rosh Hashanah that you probably are all familiar with. Right, the very beginning, the way in which they used to communicate the information about having seen the new moon for the uh, for the new month was by lighting uh, some kind of uh, torches or um, or bonfires, and then at some point the kutim interrupt by sending false signals, and therefore they changed to the uh, to the system that seems to have been prevalent uh, throughout the Gemara or right, throughout the, the 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 Mishnah, which is um, that they send out messengers. Okay, and then they tell you what, what does it mean that they were Masiyah and Masuos, and they, tell, they give you a description of what the, the Masuos were composed of and what they would do, which is that they would be um, that you would um, wave the torches or adjust the fire so that it waved in various directions until you saw the person on the next mountain, and you would do it all the way through. And finally, at the end, right, you do one mountain to another until the last person would, would get to see they would see the um, the entire diaspora in front of them, looking like a uh, looking like a torch. Okay, so the question is, um, what is the um, what is what really happened here? So the way I usually try to um, try to express this to students is uh, ask students in many contexts, what do you think is the uh, when do you think that speed of light communication was invented? And usually students give you an answer somewhere between the 18th. Uh, to the 21st to the 21st century, sometimes they think it hasn't been invented yet. And after a little bit of that, I'm not going to embarrass anyone here by making you answer the question. I wave at them and point out that we have just engaged in speed of light communication. And that's um, right. That really right. Just waving at people is speed of light communication. And even if you don't like that, so lighting fires, right, which are supposed to be seen by somebody else, is certainly speed of light communication. So my father liked to point out my father's specialty was um, he was an electrical engineer who specializes in communications. And so I'd like to point out that really we don't have any technology that functions faster in terms of communication than the time of the Mishnah. Um, what right? And in fact, you know, telegraphs and Wi-Fi only 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 um, you know towers all over the place. So we haven't. It's not like we have one signal that we send all over the world. We still need relay stations, uh, just as they did. And you want to know how that works? Right? You can just watch uh, Lord of the Rings, right? Which has a beautiful scene uh, about being Masia and Masua and how effective the communication strategy. That is what they lacked, he said, was a coding algorithm. All right, a sufficiently sophisticated coding algorithm that would enable them to send messages um, to the person to the receiver at the other end in such a way 
that the receiver at the other end could be sure that they have received an act, that they have received an accurate message, um, despite the interference, the noise, the static that was um, that was being produced, and that was exactly my father's specialty. But the the finish for our purposes is to realize that um, right, that what we have now is not a hardware. Right, our hardware is not more is not necessarily better or more sophisticated in terms of sending communications. Maybe a little bit more weatherproof, maybe not. Um, but um, but it's our intellectual sophistication in terms of coding algorithms that's the difference. And this is, I think, a very important point generally to thinking about the relations in halacha and science. There are, especially especially if you want to understand past sources, there are two kinds of mistakes you fall into. One of which I think people are often cognizant of is called anachronism. When you interpret a source based on a scientific idea or technological accomplishment that they did not have yet, and you right, you retroject uh, something that exists nowadays into the past. The other, which is uh, a lot, I think, less uh, more immediately um, more immediately familiar to people, is what I call reverse anachronism, and that's when you assume that they didn't have something in the past uh, that didn't exist until our day, and that uh, that can be true about moral issues, um, and it can be true about science, scientific issues. And an example of that is the belief that they didn't have communication that functioned at the speed of light that could function over long distances. Because in fact, right, in high emission, they could do that. What they didn't have was a sufficiently sophisticated coding algorithm. Now this has a, um, an afkamina. Uh, if, you go, if you take a look at the, at the Gemara and Beitza, Gemara and Beitza quotes our mission, so that implies that if the kutim no longer existed, we're no longer creating the interference with the signal of the Yanachad Yoma, the wind they asked would go back to keeping one day of Yantiv. And furthermore, uh, right, uh, anywhere, right, anywhere where the agents get to, they should still keep Chad Yoma. So nowadays, where we have a calendar, let's assume that's what it means, right, we have a calendar so we can predict when the new moon will appear. We have no, no need to get information from Israel. So why do we keep two days of Yantiv? This was a question my father asked me a lot. Uh, it was one of the things about halacha that disturbed him was the continuing, continuing to keep two days of Yantiv. So we answered, because I sent a message, uh, presumably from Eretz Yisrael to some city in Bavel that, um, that said, we know, the, we, we know the, uh, when the new moon is, so why should we keep uh, two days? Um, Keep the minag of your ancestors, meaning to keep two days. Because someday there'll be a Xerashmad and things will go wrong. So why will things go wrong? Because there's a, all of a sudden there's a decree against some kind of Torah knowledge or spreading. Or, um, so Rashi says, the Gazra Malchus Xera, it doesn't have Shmada, but it seems to me the same thing here. They'll tell you not to um, learn Torah. And you'll forget the Soda Ibur. Soda Ibur probably here means, I think, I'm happy to be corrected, the mathematical means of calculating the calendar far, the calendar far enough in advance. And you'll, you'll do one day because you'll get it wrong and you don't have, you won't have a custom of keeping it two days. You'll end up eating chamez on one day that's actually Pesach because you won't remember how to calculate the... Um, how to calculate the calendar, uh, and that's the way, right? And that's the way that uh, I was, uh, you know, taught this mission growing up. That there's a risk that they'll t- that we'll forget how to calculate the calendar, and that's why we'll keep two days instead of um, instead of one day. But if you once you understand um, my father's uh, word, you realize that doesn't make any sense 
because uh, well, this is problematic, because even if we forgot how to calculate a calendar, but in Eretz Yisrael, they would still observe the new moon and then, right, and they could send messages. And if there are no kutim, then they could send messages. And if we have now a sufficiently advanced coding algorithm that enables us to send messages reliably from Eretz Yisrael to, um, to Bevel, then it shouldn't matter in the slightest if somebody had a decree against Torah, because it's not information about Torah that's the issue. It's information about, or it's the ability to send information uh, in ways that can't be intercepted or uh, or jammed. This is uh, this issue is acknowledged uh, by Rishlamas uh, Arbach in passing, um, because he right where he says um, he's dealing with a you know with a really interesting question. What happens if somebody um, from if somebody who before before their bar about mitzvah comes to Eretz Yisrael, and therefore he thinks they shouldn't be bound by minhagavot because they weren't right they weren't chayiv and mitzvot yet in Chuslaris, and now they come to Eretz Yisrael. According to the position that diasporans have to keep two days in Israel, do they uh, right? Do they still have to keep two days in Israel? Um, and he, he, uh, his answer is yes. But along the way, right? Made of, and again, we, we don't have to talk about that halacha at all. Um, along the way, he acknowledges the afshagam beretz Israel shayach shasha. That really, the the concern about if the concern is. If there's any concern that the um, that in the long run that there'll be a exera and it will forget how to calculate the new moon, then that concern should apply just as much in Eretz Yisrael as it does in as it does in Chutzlaris. And therefore, the explanation we have of, of, of Rashi and the explanation that focuses on a lack of knowledge of the calendar uh, doesn't really work very well at all. Um, okay, so I'll just leave this as as a kasha. I think it's a it's a good kasha. Why it is that um, that that Rashi frames the problem um, that leads to the per- the, the permanence of Yontif Shani in terms of Torah when that shouldn't be the issue at all, assuming that we're trying to explain, which the Gemara is trying to explain why we keep two days even after we've gotten rid of the interference from the Kutim. And I hope people keep these ideas in mind as we as we go forward, that they're, when you're talking about the interrelation of Halakha and science, you have to be careful both about, uh, both about anachronism and about reverse anachronism. And in general, that we need to be very, very careful about every stage of an argument and trying to figure out what we're proving and what we're proving it from. All right, because here, uh, right, it's because we lose track of the argument that we can believe that, oh, if they forget how to calculate the calendar, then we're going to end up with the result that in the diaspora, they should keep two days, but not in Israel when really the problem should be, um, where the problem should be everywhere. Um, okay. So let's, let's turn now to this week's Parsha. Um, so I'm going to uh, put up on the screen a... Um, is sort of, I guess, a schematic of the the uh, births of Yaakov's uh, first eleven sons, um, and what you'll see is that there's a pattern, and the pattern is composed of uh, four verbs. The four verbs are vatar, and then vateled. Right? Vatar presumably means that uh, that uh, woman became pregnant. Vateled is that there's right there's a birth. Uh, vatikra. So then there's a calling of names. It's not always vatikra. And that creates its own issues, just as it did in terms of Yaakov and Esav, where Yaakov is, where by Esav it's Vayikra Ushma Esav, by Yaakov it's Vayikra Shema Yaakov, and trying to figure out who names. But here it's it's general. It's it seems to be always the mother, although the language is somewhat is somewhat different. And then there's a Ki Amra, right? There's a there's an explanation of the name, right? So for, right, so pregnancy, uh, birth, uh, naming, and rationale for the name, right? That's what happened by Reuven. 
the same pattern with slightly different language, right? Here is Ki Amran, here is Vatomer. The same pattern happens by Shimon. Uh, here we have, right, there's Vatar Od, but right, same pattern happens by uh, Vatar, Vatelet, Vatomer, uh, Alkane Kroshima. So the pattern is reversed. Sorry, this should be DMC, right? The pattern the pattern is reversed by, um, by Levi, um, but we still have the same four verbs. Um, and then, right, and then the, um, then the same four, the same four here by, by Yehuda. Now we get on to Bilha. We get on to Bilha, uh, we get on to Bilha, Vatar, Vatelet, now Rachel, we have to say who's saying Rachel is the one who says Vatomer, and she calls him by name, right? Bilha again, Vatar, Vatelet, Vatomer, Rachel, Vatikra. So all, right, same pattern except for that one reversal of, uh, of C and D. Now all of a sudden we get to Zilpa, there's no Vatar. And both of Zilpa's children, there's no Vatar, it's just Vatelet, Vatelet. Okay, that's an interesting thing. Why do we leave out the, why do we leave out the Vatar? Okay, then we're back to back to Leah, and here we are: Vatar, Vatela, Vatomer, Vatikra, Vatar, Vatela, Vatomer, Vatikra, and then we have a mysterious Vachar Yoldabat. Again, no, no Vatar, and we have a Vatikra Shema, but we have no Vatomer. So that's really what I'm going to focus on: is how anomalous is the right is the story of Dinos coming into being? Um, so it doesn't say Vatar, and it doesn't explain the name Dina. Okay, and then we get to uh, then we get to, uh, to Rachel's uh, Rachel's conception of Yosef. Here we do have Vatar, uh, we have a tailored vein. Uh, it's interesting that all the um, that many of the previous ones are tailored vein Yaakov, and here there's no Yaakov. And as Vatomer, it doesn't say who the Vatomer is. Presumably it's Rachel. And then we have Vatikra, and then we have an additional an additional line. Right, there's a second rationale, Vatomer. And then right after Vatikrachimo, there's there's Lemur again. Okay, so these are all the anomalies in the uh, in the story that matter to us, but we're focused specifically on the absence of the Vatar and the absence of the rationale in the um, in the case of Dina. Okay, so what do we do with these? So um, here's uh, what, I, what I'm gonna try and do is show that there are, I hope we'll get to all of them, five different um, sugyot, which um, people bring evidence for, postkin bring evidence for, uh, although not always postkin, um, based on the anomalies in the uh, in the in the um, presentation of the gestation and birth of Dina, um, and we're going to try and talk about a. So, are they bringing the raya from the right from the chumash directly? Are they bringing the raya from someone's interpretation of chumash, which they find convincing? Or are they bringing the raya from someone's interpretation of Chumash, even though they don't find it convincing? All right, and that's, those, and that's a, the same kind of stage argument. We have to be really precise. What's wrong? Because if a an important posig um, use right, creates a melitza in which they interpret a biblical text some way, and we find it utterly unconvincing, but their their interpretation depends on a prior assumption of the halacha. So we can say, look, we can see from this interpretation. That that person held that way about the halacha, and the fact that we don't find their specific interpretation convincing in this case is irrelevant because all we're trying to prove is that they really held this, and we know that they didn't hold this because of this drush, right? Because of this melitza, right? They gave the melitza because they already held this. On the other hand, if we think that the is deriving 
the halacha from this interpretation of Chumash. And then, if we interpretation of Chumash, then we also think that they're right that they're they have no basis that convinces us them raise um, moral issues also. But I'm going to try to largely in this sheer uh, bracket those questions and think more about methodology. Um, in other contexts, we can talk. We can talk about those issues. So one is whether you make a shechiyah on the birth of a daughter. Uh, second is under what circumstances you're um, right. You're allowed to pray, um, and specifically under what circumstances you're allowed to pray for a uh, for a child uh, who has not yet been born to be of a particular gender. Uh, the third is are you allowed to engage in certain kinds of testing for genetic defects before the child is born. Uh, the fourth is parentage in cases where the um, the the, uh, the child is um, conceived from the egg of one mother and then uh, that egg is is um, transferred into the womb into the womb of another woman. Right. So which of them or how many of them um, is are the mothers? And finally, the question of what happens um, how we how we regard people who, in some way or another, um, regard themselves as having a shift shifted gender, whether it's you know, and that's. An enormously complicated situation is all right. I want to just talk about the way in which it relates to this again. Okay, so those are those are my five cases. Let's go. Uh, let's go forward. Um, so Rashbam says, um, She called her name Dina. That the Torah does not give an explanation as it does uh, for all the male children. Right? There's no Vatomer. Um, and usually the name is a hudat. It's a thank to God. At least those are those. That's what happens when um, Leah gives birth to boys. Uh, most explicitly a pam Hashem, but generally it's a thank you. Uh, right. So Shabbat seems to think that it could be descriptive that people don't um, give the same degree of hudat to God over the birth of a daughter as they do to a son. Now that could easily be. Uh, socially descriptive as opposed to prescriptive. It could be the Rishbam thought this was terrible, but nonetheless, it's true. Lania uh, Dati, but uh, those of you who have heard me frequently know that I rarely think the Rishbam is actually shot. Um, it has a weakness in that, okay, but she's, the name still has a purpose. So if it wasn't Hoda, what was the purpose of the names, right? So why, why, don't, we mention, why don't we mention the name? I mean, particularly since you have a name done uh, all, the, all the way above, uh, some people try to interpret this by claiming that Dina was Dina was not actually named because of um, her parents' um, hopes and anticipations for her, the way her brothers are named, but rather post facto because of the terrible thing that happened to her. Uh, but that also is a difficult thing to say um, to say in context. Um, and we that we can be apologetic and as I say, then claim that Rashbam is uh, is being purely descriptive, uh, but we should be aware that um, let's say. Yosef Ibn Kasti, for example, is very, very um, explicitly prescriptive, right? It's because daughters are less important, right? So that, that, that's entitled, entitled to, um, to make us feel uncomfortable. Uh, but I want to read the way that Sicily has a response. Um, um, that, right, that Rav Steinberg asked the Kasha, right? Because he passed in Chedek Yud Gimel Simen Chaf, the Varech Shechianu Aledat He thinks you make a Shechianu. And the person asked the question from Rav and he quotes Rav Shpam, right? Right, so the Sicily has a response, and I love this Sicilian response. He says, "Hey, look, you yourself know the Rishbam on Chumash is not a halachic source." Uh, secondly, he says they're against Chazal because uh, Chazal say, "Vatikrat Shemadina, my my bechar yeldabat, 
ואז נקרא את שמה דינה, מאי ואחר, אמר רוהב, לאחר שדנה ליה דין ועצמה, ואמרה שליה engaged in analysis on her own, and she realized that Rachel was going to be short-changed, so, right, so she realized that she didn't want another son, she wanted a daughter, and the purpose that we have here, says in, so we see that according to Rashbam, um, it's important for the Pasuk, to, right, the Torah wants us to know why Dina was called Dina, right, because it says Ve'achar, we have to know, we have to know what the Ve'achar is, um, right, and so as the Marshoi says, explains, that Ve'achar serves in place of uh, Tomer, it's also what the real purpose is, and he quotes the uh, Marvelously, that the the Targum Yonatan on this says, right? The Karat Yachma Dina Arum Amart, right? So the right the Targum Yonatan actually puts in the phrase we're missing, right? Ki Amra, right? And then quotes this whole story about Dina making a call to Homer in her own, and therefore he says this is a uh, right. Your Raya is no Raya because the Rashbam is against um, is against Chazal, and then he says, you know, by the way that um, by the way. Uh, just because Rashbam says that we, that you have less Oda for a daughter doesn't mean you don't say Shechino. That argument doesn't work at all. And then he goes further and he says there's a minhag, um, right, uh, quoted by the Drishna Torah that um, that when there is a, a naming of a daughter and a right and a on the same day that you take the chatan and kala to name the daughter and then you go to and then you and then you bring them to the wedding. And the reason for that is that just as Mila. Right, just as a bris, a bris precedes the wedding, so the kriyat shame of a daughter is just like a bris. And he says, and he says, well, hang on a second. There's nothing per se about naming that matters. Therefore, varur shezeu gam bichlal hachashivas v'hodaa shel etzem leidas hatinokus. It's because the birth of a daughter is such an important thing, right? Because the giving a name is only a consequence of the is only a consequence of the birth, and therefore, it's since Eliezer sticks. Very, very strongly to his um, to his position, despite the Rashbam um, that uh, that we make Sheikh and daughters. So we can talk about you know there's still a problem Sheikh versus a Tovah Meitiv, but it does an interesting thing where Wilgen Sliari says, look, a Rashbam isn't Rashbam isn't Pshat, and b Rashbam is wrong. Uh, right, and I think it's important to get uh, to get right to get both of those. This is not an example of a scientific scientific shift. It might be an example of a moral shift. Uh, right, because neither Rashbam really, and certainly not, um, certainly not Sisuliezer, is not an expert on the uh, social mores uh, that existed in the time of Yaakov Avinu, and neither of them is claiming that 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 Yaakov and Leah or Leah was acting against the culture in the way in which they named Dina, but they have their own positions as to what the right thing is, and the Rashbam, Rashbam thinks it's perfectly reasonable. He's just saying. Look, why should this be a problem? That's how people do. That's what people do. And Sisalayer says, no, that isn't what people do. It is first. says, So when it says right, it leaves out the pregnancy, and that teaches you, says Chizkuni, uh, that there was no pregnancy. Right, we're back here. There's no vatar because there's no vatar here. Therefore, there was no pregnancy at all. And therefore, it must be that uh, Dina is part of the same pregnancy as Vulan. Okay, that doesn't quite explain the absence of a tar by um, by uh, by Zilpa's children. But the truth is, there is no good explanation that I know of for the absence of a tar. So we'll leave. We'll forgive that um, that issue in Chizkuni.
But they're here again, as with uh, as with Rashbam, it seems to be opposed to an interpretation we find in the Chazal. So the Mishnah in Brachos, um, Paraktet says that if you're so ache, if you if you daven for something that's already happened, that's a tefillat shav, right? That's a pointless prayer, and therefore seems to constitute something you know like you know shem shemayim levatala. So what's an example? I tell you, stole me uberet. If your wife is pregnant, and a man says he ratzon right? May it be your will, God, that my wife gives birth to a male. I raise it tefillat shav, right? So that is a um, that is a false prayer. Again, we don't have to get into the issue today about whether we should criticize people for making such uh, thoughts bichlal. Whether you know why they only why the, why they say zahar as opposed to zahar and keva. Let's assume it's descriptive that 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 it is more likely that people would have made a prayer for male children um, at that time. So the Gemara says, right, but once she's pregnant, you can't make that prayer because that would be an example of praying about something that's already happened, which suggests that once a woman becomes pregnant, that the gender is fixed. And you right, and so therefore prayer is pointless because you're asking to change, or us, or, or because you're asking to change the past. The Gemara says, you're trying to tell me that um, that prayer doesn't help to change the gender of a child. So Rav Yosef challenged this from our Pasuk, and he quotes the same, right, the same thing we saw, after Leah thought about it to herself, and she said, look, Yaakov's going to have 12 Shvatim, six come from me, two from the Shvachot, at least 10. So if this is, if this child that I'm having is male, then Rachel will have even less Children less fewer shvatim than the shvachot. So we can we could have all sorts of questions about why it is that Leah is what why it is that social standing depends on how many children you have. Why it is that Leah thinks it's important that Rachel, in that measure of higher social standing than the shvachot, whether we support Rachel Leah this or we criticize Leah for doing this, not our issue right now. This is just this is just her rationale. She prays, and God accepts the prayer. Miyad nevchalavat so immediately. The child in her womb is reversed and becomes right from from male to female. Okay, so we understand without the herayon to mean that when she became pregnant, um, when she became pregnant, then uh, it was right the child the the fetus was male, and during her pregnancy, as a result of her prayer, the fetus shifted from male to female. Um, Right, and that seems to contradict the Mishnah, which says that once the woman is pregnant, you can't write then it's a filat shav to pray that way. So one possibility is in maskirin masin misim. So there's some kind of um, tension about praying for miracles. Everyone has to play around. With. There are times where you do pray for miracles, praying for miracles unnecessarily. Uh, right, that's the whole right. That's the whole challenge. But it seems to suggest that the answer is um, that ordinarily, in in the way of nature. Once the pregnancy begins, you, you're, you're not, you can't shift the gender, and that was a miracle. But by the same, another solution is that the story of Leah happened within the first 40 days of pregnancy. And now we quote a Brisa which says that, you know, that which lists what you're supposed to pray for. This seems to be much harder to, to deal with. Just with right, so let's just say to solve the problem if you want, right? So the first three days we're going to pray, you should just pray for the survival of the child. From day three until day forty, um, you can right. You can ask for mercy. You can pray that the child be male, right? So that seems to suggest that for the first forty days, it's actually a natural event. 
that can be read as the Machlokas Machronim. That can be read as saying that this right that contradicts the Mishnah, or we can reconcile it that we said, that must mean that you know that your wife is pregnant, and if you know that your wife is pregnant, then it must be already 40 days past the pregnancy, but somehow, if you were aware that it's in the first of pregnancy within the first 40 days, because your wife experiences somehow, that uh, that tells it to you, then you, you're allowed to pray. And the Gemara reverses it and says, hang on a sec, does prayer ever help? But the Gemara has a, um, the Gemara says, even before conception, there's a way, there's a way of knowing whether the child will be male or female, which depends on who climaxes first, uh, the, man, the man or the woman. If the man climaxes first, then the result is a female child. If the woman climaxes first, then the, uh, the result is a male child. And we quote, possibly it's not our issue right now. I think our answer is, so it must be, we say that prayer is efficacious, only if they climax simultaneously. Okay, so right then we have a whole question on the that whether that means you have to know how the child was conceived, whether you're always allowed to pray, because there is a natural circumstance in which the child's gender could be fluid uh, until 40 days of um, until 40 days after after conception. The Rishalme, um has a different set of lines. It quotes uh, Beyanai saying that the uh, the, Mishnah, the Mishnah, even though it says Muhubera, it really means only at the very last stage of pregnancy when she's already when she's already in labor. And Aruda Ben Pazi is cholik on the Mishnah. He disagrees with the Mishnah. Because he says you can pray for a shift in gender even when the woman is already uh, at, on the birthing stool at labor. Note, even the um, even woman in right, at, in labor is capable of changing. This is played out in greater detail in other midrashim that uh, gender is plastic in the hands of God uh, until the moment uh, until the moment of birth. Um, Okay, and then Rebbe Mishen Devesianai connects this to the story we saw about Leah, that when Leah, right, that actually Leah, uh, when she conceived, uh, her child was male, and then after Rachel, Rachel prayed, uh, right, so this is different, right, because we have Dina, we have Dina praying, this is the first version of Rachel praying, the fetus in her womb is Naaset Nekeva, becomes, um, becomes female. Okay, so that's, uh, right, one, right, a series of physicians in Chazal, that are brought for a specific halachic purpose. Under what circumstances are you allowed to pray for a child to be of one gender? And we don't see this as already fixed. So in the Bible, you have the notion that you can do it until until 40 days, possibly only if you're sure that the child was conceived in such a way that leaves it uh, that leaves it neutral. Uh, the Yerushalmi moves the date in which you can pray, right, of gender fluidity all the way up um, to labor and maybe even up to the moment of birth. Um, as opposed to this, we have the Targum Yonatan, um, which let's just, you know, I'm not, not treating as simultaneous with the, the Shalom Babli, but as recording an alternate tradition, um, which may have, you know, have as, as roots as ancient or may have arisen later because they found the, the text of the Babli and Shalom implausible, which says, that there, um, what really happened was not that the child, that the children in the wombs were transformed. It's not that Leah's fetus became uh, became female, and um, and that left space for Rachel's fetus to to be male, or maybe that Rachel Rachel's fetus was male. They're unconnected because Leah's. All we need is for Leah's uh, fetus to be female. So there's room for another child for uh, for Rachel, which is why she says Yosef Hashemli uh, Ben Acher. 
There's a whole debate about whether the child in question of Rachel's is Yosef or Binyamin, which is connected. But in this version, what happens is not, uh, in the version of Tarion, what happens is not that the child in the womb is transformed from male to female, but rather that the children are exchanged. Uh, right, the child, the child in Rachel's womb is put in Leah's and vice versa. And on that, on, on that version, there's no time, there's no evidence that there's any time which you can pray for gender fluidity because the story of Rachel, of Rachel and, um, and Leah gives you no evidence of an example of gender changing in the womb. And therefore we could go back to the Pashup shot of the, um, the Pashup shot of the Mishnah, which is that uh, gender is fixed in the, um, gender is fixed in the, uh, in the, uh, for the time of conception. So the question I want to ask, though, and I don't want to pass it, I just want to ask it, is how should we pass it nowadays about what sorts of things you're allowed to pray for? And on what basis should we pass it? Should we say, well, look, there's a machlokas Bavli in Yerushalmi, or there's a machlokas Tanayim, and we go by what they say, and if they say that, you know, that gender is fluid, you know, even at the stage of birth, then go on praying at the stage Reverse. If they say the gender is fluid until the first 40 days, then go back to the first 40 days. Um, or do we say that we pass in by the Messias? And we just evaluate that all the Gemara says is you're not allowed to pray. You're not allowed to pray for things that are already fixed in the past, absent miracles. And so therefore we have to make our own determination. And now we can make our own, right? We will have all sorts of complicated decisions at this stage, possibly. It's a whole separate halachi diyun over at what point halacha regards gender. As uh, as um, as what constitutes a shift in gender? So, what sorts of things could happen in the womb or could not happen in the womb to marry? Because we might say that a child is genetically fixed at the moment of conception, but that the expression of the genes can be affected by uh, various exposures. And so, we might think that there are points, uh, right? We might think on the basis of contemporary scientific evidence that there are points at which gender is fluid in the womb. Uh, we might try to connect the points at which modernity sees gender as fluid in the womb and the way we're conceiving it, assuming that really constitutes gender fluidity. Uh, we might connect that to various positions in the Gemara, but that would probably be an anachronism because the Gemara is not defining things by, uh, right, by, by genetics as opposed to hormonal, uh, hormonal transformation. So here we have, I think, a, a good example of a general question, which is the extent to which halachot that really depends on reality, right? Because the the principle is you're not allowed to pray for things that are fixed, uh, right? So to what extent should we pass in those halachos based on our own conception of reality? And to what extent do we pass in those halachos based on the conception of reality that we attribute to Chazal? Um, then you get, you have your theological question about whether that's a religious position as to whether you're allowed or not allowed to believe uh, that Chazal science is not wholly accurate, right? Then we get into the whole Rebbe-Slifkin controversy. Um, um, right, or, right, and then you also have to figure out like, you know, so to what extent, which we'll see an example of, to what extent do we want uh, to fix ourselves to whatever the science of the moment is, it might be better methodologically to leave halacha the way it is uh, until such, right, until you know, the, the facts have been established with absolute certainty for hundreds of years, and even then it may be wrong, right, so it might, we might have good reasons for wanting halacha to be stable, even if we don't think we have religious reasons for requiring us to, right, for forbidding us to disagree with Chazal's empirical claims. Um, so I want to give an example of another way in which, though, you know, you might think, okay, well, what's the big nafkamina? The whole nafkamina is davening. Okay, so you might say that, you know what, if we're talking about something that has direct physical implications, so then 
I have an achrayas to, to determine it by what my best judgment of the empirical situation. But I'm dealing with something metaphysical, so for as long as right, I have a halakhic reasoning for doing it, so then okay, right, then I can argue that, that issues like that, metaphysical issues, are much more likely to be um, resolvable on the basis of what we might call halakhic due process. For many who uh, find themselves with uh, the medical uh, experts telling them that they're in a situation which the chances of survival are minimal, that this, the, the cancer has developed to a point that it can't be staved off. And of course, we hear this a lot. And if one uh, takes Chazal about not davening for things you can't change, uh, unless a miracle occurs, that this is, again, it gets into what you mentioned before. I think that's something that people like Rav Steif in his really classic Chadoshim Gamishonim, Chadoshim Gamishonim on Brochis uh, mentions. Um, and if you look there, you'll see he's got a section which he calls the halachas that come out of, of each daf. He champions uh, the Yerushalmi and the Medrash, uh, the other Medrashim, because I understand what he wanted to do. He did not, he wanted people to be able to still daven uh, and to still hope. Um, and I think one of the things that he brings a proof from, which is also brought by Rav Kluger, is from the uh, what we have the Nuschoyos from Alanisim, which you know, Hanukkah, which is coming up, that uh, in some of the Nuschoyos, Alanisim included not just Haido Alanes, but also the Yaselonu Nesupela. That um, so, you know, I, I you know, it is, uh, I think, a lot for many people, it goes way beyond, I really want to have a boy. Uh, it goes, what should I be davening for at, at this point? How should I daven? Uh, should I ever? And I think that's the reason why some post-gim life were, were loath to just accept the Gemara Kipshutai. Uh, they wanted to give hope for people to be able to daven. I know that you've sort of indicated that, but that's also a very important point. Well, I think the way to um, the easier way to deal with that problem is to say that the Gemara only says you can't pray for for things like wanting a son as opposed to a daughter, which at best are not terribly important, and at worst maybe is a mistake, right? Because it's, it's being kafuito to what right to what God gives you. So, right, I think the easiest way well, to solve well, the problem is to say that the Gemara to... doesn't. The, the Mishnah again. The, the Mishnah Gemara only says that it's a tefillah shav if you're talking about something. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Son and a daughter is sort of like insignificant. But one of the things that are mentioned there, of course, is that if the fire is already broken out, it's happened already. Now, if you can't be misspelled, it shouldn't hit your house. If the fire is on its way, it's something that's <laughs> it's already, you know, it, you can't daven that somehow that fire that somehow took hold of your house will miraculously become extinguished. Um it's already happened. Now it could be that's the past that the fire already happened, and you're davening for you're davening to bring back yeah. the life. children and and and, and, and whatever chasrashom that have already been charred by the fire. But uh, from the Gemara's tushda, it's mashma that if the fire broke out, the fire the fire is burning it. So, um, so therefore, it, I think it does have some relevance in that way. Okay, uh, I like your other interpretation. Yeah, I like I like to argue. I admit I understand the weakness of it that. 
there's a difference between the two cases, and the fire case is talking about mamish lisha avar, and and the and the um, and this case is talking about something that has happened that has a necessary implication for the future, but it's not the alacha sefer that's organized by you know it's a gift like roshtayf sefer right? It's a gift to uh, to people who, who who teach the daf. Uh, I think it's very important. I'm going to say it you know publicly that chesuke uh, chemed is not a sefer alacha lemasa. And uh, it's a safer you know, right? To sharpen the to sharpen the students, you have to be very careful not to take the answers the masa, uh, as opposed to you know the, the the cases are thought up to raise certain kinds of issues and to address those issues in isolation and not to address the whole case. But nonetheless, right? Or dafka because of that, it gives you a good example of how what might seem to be uh, an issue that's removable just to the realm of metaphysics actually the discussion of what you think really happened. Um, when you when you make compromises like that and you say okay we'll accept something that we think is not empirically true for the purposes of halacha it's going to end up they're going to end up cases where it really does matter to you uh, in physics in, in alamaza and so the question that um, that, he, that he addresses and is what happens if a uh, if if the the doctors want a um, want a woman to uh, to undergo a, a, probably an amniocentesis uh, to find out whether the um, whether a child has a uh, has has some kind of genetic um, deformity, and therefore, right, and um, presumably the reasons the doctors are telling you is because if the child has that has that genetic uh, deformity because they they know from your right that you're a carrier, that or that both of you are carriers, then they would they would they would encourage you to abort. Um, he doesn't say the word Tay-Sachs explicitly, but um, but probably what he's talking about. In the narrow case of Tesex, I think he's Dafka not mentioning the disease. Um, and we should mention, you know, everyone knows that Sicily has uh, allowed um, full scale you know, national amniocentesis for women over 40 for Down, for Down syndrome in Israel. So there's a radical position the other way as well. But what Rosilberstein says here is should you, um, should you engage in genetic testing of embryos or not, even in cases, I think it's clear from the continuation where you have reason to suspect that there's a 25% chance that your child has to sex. And so he quotes Rav Moshe not really accurately as saying should be that the genetic testing is only begetter umdana, it's not an absolute proof that you can rely on the vados. And that was true perhaps when Rav Moshe wrote this in the early 70s. I don't know if Rav Moshe would have said the same thing uh, later on, although it's, it's very careful to understand that not every genetic test um, yields the same degree of, of accuracy. Um, and not every diagnosis of genetic condition has the same necessary implications for realities that matters. Like in my family I can say specifically um, for Gauchets. Um, but he says, Ramosha said, this is just an umdana, and are we going to allow abortion for, uh, an abortion for uh, on the basis of an umdana? Really, um, really not. Okay, Ramosha, I think everyone knows, again, Ramosha is extremely machmer. He thinks that Abortion is a form of murder, even for Jews. And Ramosha thinks that only the narrowest definition of, of calling the fetus erode allows abortion under any circumstances, as opposed to the Siciliaser. Um, but the uh, what matters to us is that the uh, that Rav Zilberstein does a number. First of all, he says that in the Rishalma, that Gemara um, Brachos says, Shadina Rachel. We see from the Gemara Brachos that Leah's prayer 
actually cause miracles, right? So he's going to go really far that prayer can cause miracles. And furthermore, the Yerushalmi seems to think that he, he whereas the Yerushalmi, as we have it, only relates to gender transformation. He thinks that the Yerushalmi teaches you that all conditions in a fetus are, uh, are plastic until the moment until the moment of, uh, moment of birth. So he thinks that genetics, that prayer can transform the genetics of a child, even uh, even at the moment of labor. And Abuda thinks even during labor, as long as you haven't actually right, have, I, don't, I think the Yerushalmi really only talks about gender shifts, but he thinks he thinks that it relates to everything. Um, okay, and then he says in Kalvachomer, you can even switch, you can even switch children in the womb. But now he has a fascinating claim. He says, Ulam, all these capacities to affect miracles only apply if you don't check. But after it's already known, right, once you do the check, so that makes it impossible because now not only do you have to change the the, the um, not only change nature, you also have to um, you have to change nature openly, and that's asking too much. And therefore, he says you should always right if you you should go to a chacham to pray before you do any. Before you do any di- diagnosing, because the chacham's prayer will be more efficacious before the um, before the uh, before the diagnosis, because then it won't be an open it won't be in uh, an open thing. So well, we don't have time to go into it, but you'll see that I think his use of Rav Moshe um, really Rav Moshe didn't say anything anywhere near as radical as he's claiming. And again, I I like to think that Choshik uh, is often being deliberately provocative and would not it's not actually the way he would pass the Certain cases, it really has to be that way. There's certain um, certain results in Choshuk Hamid that um, if one thought he meant them, then yeah, one could not possibly take him seriously as a posik, I think, in any area. Uh, but what I want to show is like, you know, so here it looks like an innocent, you know, the, the question of whether we accept the facts of the Gemara, the scientific claims of Gemara, the empirical claims of Gemara only affect metaphysical things like davening, but here it affects behavior in very dramatic ways, um, where the Choshuk Hamid gives an argument that is logically coherent that would essentially ban all um, all uh, genetic testing. Now, again, in practice, we'd say, but what about the fact the fact that these, this testing will also enable you to treat in some circumstances? So you're being so mechalanes if, if you don't engage in it. Right? There are also right, all sorts of ways in which you could not yield this result. But I wanted to show it as an example that you, often we think we can evade the question um, and not care about what happened, what we really believe happens empirically. Uh, you know, for example, um, right up case where we're doing that nowadays is: Do we really care about whether uh, smooth metal pots uh, absorb taste? Um, right. So there are different positions about that. We about uh, right? there are different. There's reality questions, but then there's the question: Do we care? And often we we end up saying uh, on this. I'm you know in the case of Kashrus, I am um, I am um, I am partial to that position that we just follow halachic due process, and we follow the system as it exists, as opposed to trying to make it conform to contemporary notions of science. But I'm aware of the risks. I want you to be aware of the risks of that uh, as well. And here we have an example where it looks like an issue that has no um, this worldly implications for whether you, for how you follow halacha, then uh, here, here, it, um, here it has implications. Uh, um, the transformation of the child already in the womb, but the, the shift of a fetus from one well, two fetuses, two fetuses being interchanged, so that means that each fetus ends up having been conceived in one woman's body, and presumably from presumably from the egg of that woman. Yeah, but again, I have to be careful about anachronism, right? That it's not clear 
that um, that these midrashim are, or the Targum Yonatan, whatever you want to call it, right, is functioning with the conception of women having eggs, right? That's a whole that's a whole challenge, right? Of as which which uh, which which figures in the past under, uh, understood um, conception as the unification of a male seed with a female seed, and uh, which did not. Um, but they clearly, right? That matter clearly treats Dina and either Yosef or Binyamin as fetuses that are born from a different womb than they were uh, than they were conceived in. And if you want to be anachronistic, and maybe not incorrectly, because it could be you have to worry about reverse anachronism also, because certainly there are conceptions of a female seed uh, prior to right prior, prior to modernity. Um, so that the question is, you know, that can be presented as models for uh, teaching you right who the parent who who the parentage of uh, of a, such a child what we call now you know surrogacy um, is uh, can be right who, who the mother is. And the result would be, it seems clearly that Dina is Leah's child and Yosef is Rachel's child. So it seems to clearly yield the result that um, yield the result that the birth mother is all that matters and not the um, and not the conception not and not the uh, the egg mother or the conception mother. Uh, since that's the way I lean halachically, so it's very uh, it's very attractive to me. And I think it is important to understand here again, right, that the the force of this raya. Is not oh I think that that must be shot in what happens to Rachel and Leah, and if I find if I think this is all not correct and the correct explanation of a tar of a tailored bane is that Dina was really Zvulun's twin, or the correct explanation of a tar of a tailored bane is really that it's just uh, it's, it's it's just random and look the same thing happened by Zilpa, that's not what the raya is. The raya is that everyone who interpreted the text this way, whether I find their interpretation correct or not, assumed. That the birth mother is the mother, right? They're not, right? They're not, uh, right? They're not deriving their position from. They're not interested in 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 that issue at all. They're assuming they've already solved that issue. So that I think is a good raya that all the people who say that uh, think that the birth mother is the mother. But of course, you can reject the raya, and this is you know, by saying, but who says halacha in the cases of miraculous transformations is the same as the halacha in the case of natural things, uh, as, na- as na- of natural things of the sort. Uh, right, maybe by transferring the the the, the fetus, as God shows something about who He wants to be the mother, which is different. Right, there are all sorts of ways we could distinguish it. Um, nonetheless, I think it's not a bad raya that all the people who say that must hold that the birth mother is all that uh, is all that matters. Um, and really, the the, you know, the the what we think happened, or what we think could happen. Uh, right, if you if you're you know, you're too much of a of a of a naturalist or rationalist to believe that. Uh, that that kind of miracle happens, or that that kind of miracle happens, it doesn't make it into the text explicitly. It doesn't matter. It's still true that everyone who adopts that as their interpretation of the text has a prior assumption that um, that you can make this that this interpretation works because birth mothers are all that matter. Okay, we have one other uh, one other one other thing to do, um, which is the question, right? That according to the other interpretation, which seems to be the the shot in the uh, in the Bavli and the Yerushalmi, which is not that the fetuses are nifchalef, but that they're but that they're meapech, right? That they switch. So that seems to suggest that there is a fetus that begins as male, and then is transformed into female, and it has all the halachas of femaleness and vice versa, right? And, and vice versa. Um, and there, Emma um, Yaakov, Rabbi Yaakov Kameski, has an interpretation which is built 
the Alshif preceded him, but I prefer the MS Yaakov's formulation. Right, even though right, so Dina becomes female and Yosef becomes male, but that doesn't mean that their gender expression, right? That's the way we would say it modernity. Even though their legal gender is completely changed, their gender expression is not completely changed because we find now we can debate whether this is what we consider to be the uh, the appropriate standards of gender expression. But from his for the perspective of Ryaka Kamenetsky, yeah, what matters is not the specifics. What matters is that he is willing to acknowledge a circumstance in which a fetus has shifted um, legal gender, but even though they still have um, prior that right, the the gender expression has not shifted entirely. That's really exactly what he says, because we find that Yosef still you know plays with his hair, and that Dina is uh, is uh, too outgoing. Okay, again, we could very much critique. Uh, whether we think that that's exactly what um, what gender expression should be, um, but I think again the underlying the underlying the underlying uh, or we could not right no, that's a, that's beyond the scope of this year. But the um, the underlying um, claim of Yaakov Kamenetsky is that we can imagine a being that has one legal gender and then um, at a certain point has it right, has another legal gender. Even though that doesn't mean that there's no remnant of the past gender, um, and you can see this playing out in the the Sisliezer has you know has three famous tribute about transgenderism, which I'm not going to go into now. Um, the the interesting line about it for me for our purposes, he says, is the Agav. By the way, Shemati me I heard from a doctor. Shesuge hormoni mishutafim yesh lemasel esachar nekeva gam yachad that all the the hormones that affect gender expression are shared by by um, by by uh, by men and women and all that matters is the percentages therefore he says right therefore it can't be that um that the presence or existence of internal chemistry is sufficient because it's only a matter of percentages uh, therefore it has to be he argues that in at least in his narrow case all that matters is uh, all that matters is the um, is the the morphology the um, right the 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 hormones for the for the transgender the man who started as a man uh, to grow breasts there's he, he, uh, he won't be able to have genitalia that are actual female genitalia absolutely it, absolutely so so this is this is the question is the is told right, right, when he says, and I'm looking here on the screen with you, um, that sounds it sounds unsitzeliezerdic to say, okay, well, you uh, you display yourself. In other words, it look, uh, you look like a, a woman. The the, um, the are, are are in the genitalia are there are are a woman's. That sounds strange. Well, so okay, so I want to be. I, you know, I'm trying, you know, we can come back at some other point and talk about the whole transgender issue. And in this instance, specifically, you know, Svisinensky has an article on Lairhouse this week that's certainly worth uh, worth looking at. Um, but here's here's what I'm interested in in this group, right? This this is not entirely true. And even if it's entirely true, it doesn't have effects in adults that way. It probably, it doesn't have sufficient, effect. you can't, hormonal shifts, in, you know, once a child is born, are not going to change um, sufficiently change the expression of, of, of external genitalia in a way that would affect halacha. 
Right. Um, this is in this shiva, I think this is the shiva is in a very narrow case of a, a child of, a, of, a, of an infant born intersex. And he has what I think is a mistaken impression of what hormonal treatment can do even for that child. Um, and I think in general, this is the question later, it's very tempting to say, oh, look, the Gemara says that, uh, says that, that gen- gender can be affected uh, even, during, even during conception. Look, it's true that we now believe that um, gender expression, even to the point of genitalia, can be affected by what we call your hormonal, right, hormonal uh, floods. All right, that's how, that's how we have the phenomenon of individuals who have, um, who have X chromosomes, but nonetheless have, right, nonetheless have female genitalia or vice versa. So it's very easy to say, oh, look, right, the, Gemara got, the Gemara got it right. right? The Gemara knew that, that things could happen, at the, right, that things could happen even during pregnancy that would affect external gender expression. Uh, right, you know, physical gender expression, not right, not behavioral, the way that the Yaakov talks about, yeah. and it, right. But this, to me, is an example, you know, of anachronism. That's not the, uh, that's not, that's not really what they were talking about. And then you also have to be very careful about, you know, since Leizer makes this claim, but his, at least, you know, if you were to take his claim at face value, is radically overbroad. Uh, right, it can't have any effects like that at any stage. I think that it's very risky to just pass halacha based on an assumption that we always knew the Metsias, because that doesn't seem to be correct, you know, necessarily correct, unless you take the extreme position that everything in, in the Chazal has to be empirically correct. Um, and on the other hand, it's also very dangerous to Paskin based on what people tell you now, because the science is going to change in five years also. And, right, so, um, and it's very easy, even if the science, it's very easy, unless you're really, really deeply expert in the field, it's very easy to misunderstand what they're telling you. Um, so, for example, the Dora Tapuchot, as Schwartz pointed out, which is the, the people take as the only safer, the standards are the only safer, is of the belief that um, that gender reassignment surgery affects the object of desire. Uh, right? That if you right that, it, you know, that if you're transformed into being male by gender reassignment surgery, and right, then you will end, right or hormonal treatment, right, whatever it is, you'll end up desiring women. If you were previously heterosexual, right, and you were if you were previously heterosexual woman and you desired, right, if you're heterosexual, you desired men. Now, right, that's a that's so far as I can tell, a wholly incorrect belief. But the door top of Chod Paskins that way. Uh, in this case, um, what the um, what Rizitzeliazer seems to me to believe, he's dealing with an intersex baby uh, who has the ex, the appearance of external genitalia, female, uh, although there is a testicle. Inside one, right, in, uh, hidden inside a fold of what appears to be a vagina, and there are no intern, right? The, but the child is genetically male, and there are no internal female reproductive organs. Only oh, so, so it's not even an androgynous at all. So that's what he argues. It's not even androgynous, but he says he believes <laughs> it seems that if you remove the testicle, then the child will grow up to develop into a normal female, and that doesn't seem that's not true at all. Right, the child grow up to, will grow up to have the appearance of a female, right? But it's not going to have internal reproductive organs, um, right? right? A lot of the a lot of the literature right, likes quoting a you know a much earlier case of right, somebody, and, and, and it, would, it would need artificial um, uh, um, insertion of estrogen and other things to to I guess to grow breasts or everything else, right? Well, so, it's not going to grow a womb no matter what you do. What? It's not going to grow a womb 
Yeah, he won't grow a womb for sure. So right. uh, has female, female sexual organs, but no female reproductive organs. Yeah. Right. So I think that, but I think this is right. It's not obvious to me that Sicily has understood this in his psak. Um, right. So that, right. So I want to give this as an example. Right. That's where I'm going to finish this year. Right. That you have to be very careful about just assuming that we we're just going to take the facts of Chazal because you can't actually isolate that. That that bleeds into real cases like genetic testing. So it's very important to actually get the Matthias that you really believe. On the other hand, getting the Matthias really believe based on contemporary science, there are two risks. One is science changes, and certainly the science of a, how how gender is assigned and, and what gender expression is, right, really has been, you know, and the relationship between uh, between genetics and genetics and and um, and and the uterine experience and all that keeps changing, right? We, have, we don't have enough data yet. And secondly, if you're not really expert in the field, you can just misunderstand things. And you make a look, a look ridiculous that way also. Um, so I want to just, you know, put this out as a cautionary tale that um, the relationship between halakha and science is always fraught. Uh, you have to be careful when you're doing when you're doing halakha science and biblical interpretations, right? So that it gets even gets even more fraught at each level, and you have to understand right, what you're really bringing the raya for. And that's really all I wanted to do in this year was to uh, present a whole set of cases where you know, you know where you can just look at it and say, oh, look, here are all sorts of models as to what I think the proper relationship between halakha and empiricism is without poskening them, uh, without, you know, you know, I have biases, I have, when necessary, I poskin these issues. If I don't want to poskin them, I want to just put out the complexity of it and the necessity for, I think, a really good understanding of science. You can't really do this halakha as well, but also being careful to understand that where the, where the limits of the science are and where your limits as, a, you know, as even a highly educated rabbi uh, where for the vast majority of highly educated rabbis, there are still going to be very severe, very severe limits on in the way in which you actually understand the science, especially cutting edge science. Uh, and so we have to be really careful about talk that way also, uh, which looks cool in the moment, but can set you up for, uh, for, you know, mistakes that can reverberate for centuries. And increase the, uh, the number of transgender uh, adults and in the Orthodox world as well. Uh, similar to what Rabbi Edison Steif says, there's going to be those that are clamoring for this type of psaac. I mean, I, I again, as I said earlier, I think Rabbi Edison wrote what he said under the heel of emotion because he couldn't tell people not to daven for miracles because otherwise he would, he would close the door. <clears throat> I think uh, I think if you got him behind closed doors, I think Rabbi Edison Steif and other Paiskin would say, yeah, there's a certain stage. Of, of of when the cancer is so strong, you don't daven, you you daven for what the Rebbeinu Shalom's rotsin is. You and and by doing that, it's 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 not only fru- it will ultimately frustrate you. It goes against what tefillah is supposed to do. And I think here too, when it comes to the transgender issue, I, I'm afraid by seeing these, and I, I, I don't know if you share the same fear. I mean, is that these are these are are what going these chuvas are are what are it's what is what's going to be quoted in order to establish what they consider a, uh, I guess what Sperber calls a halacha that is, um, I forgot the term that he uses, Sperber calls it a halacha that is that is uh, yedidus or something that understands human beings and, and we need to use these type of chuvas, <clears throat> even though you're pointing out the, the, the scientific flaws that are in them. So again, you know, I think that we have to separate two kinds of issues. One is what the psak should be. And the relation, you know, and the extent to which human pain and awareness of human suffering should be part of that psaac, which I agree, it has to be part of it. Doesn't mean it's, you know, kovea, 
you have to make hard decisions as opposed to also. But I don't think that it's a good idea. I, I think that the rigor of the argumentation has to be preserved and, uh, and that everyone will regret it if we may end up making decisions on the, I think, I think everyone will regret it if we end up making decisions on the basis of a false allegiance to what we, what the science of the moment that may also be influenced by, by desires in this issue. And I think we all understood this now, whatever side you came out, we all understood, you know, realized during COVID that just saying we just rely on the science of the moment is <laughs> not a, right, is probably not the best way to make halakha, because what happens if it turns out that the science of the moment wasn't, you know, right, wasn't what he wanted uh, it to be because it was influenced by a presidential directive, um, right, uh, you know, and I was, you know, can I think how many, how many psakim would have been issued in the past 70 years on the basis of the assumption that only, uh, that only, um, only viruses below a certain size could be aerosolized. Right, which was the, like the whole medical profession was based on that. We could pass in that all we want, and it turns out not to be true. Right, it turns out to have been a bad study. Now that one lasted for 70 years. Uh, right, so in the moment, it might be that in the moment when you have specific situations, there's nothing you can do. You have to make the best decision you can. But when you're dealing with issues that have, you know, that, that have very long-term consequences, I think that it's wise to be much, much more cautious and to say we're going to pass in it now because this is the psak. Uh, but let's, you know, the same way, you know, let's say if somebody had decided to paskin, however they wanted, they wanted to decide to paskin something about male homosexuality on the basis of Simon LeVay's studies about, you know, different sizes of the, of the, of the hippocampus, I think it was, right, uh, which were all the rage for a year, and then turned out to be, as far as I can tell, completely unreplicable, and, and you know, in any case, you couldn't, um, you couldn't prove whether, which way was cause and effect, so that would have been you, you put these things in for a year, and then all of is, is is subject to terrible science. Uh, whether the conclusion is right or not, you don't want halakha to be based on terrible science. Um, so that's the argument I'm trying to make: is you have to be you have to be rigorous about the science, and you can't allow yourself to use um, to use bad science to reach the even if it helps you reach the conclusions you want. Either way, whether it's the chumra or the kula, as one of my students put down earlier today, look, you know what, maybe. What happens if in 50 years we've developed the capacity to transplant reproductive organs? Right, that's a wholly different case. It isn't considered by these two, but it is considered by a couple of the others, but it isn't considered by the Sicilians or explosive. Uh, we shouldn't be going for, you know, oh, look, I found a scientist who says the thing which lets me get to the conclusion I want to. Oh, good. Or even if you get to a moment where, the, where what appears to be a scientific consensus gets you to that conclusion, you can't, right? You have to realize, you know what, that might change in a year. You don't want to, you don't want to, um, you don't want to hitch halakha permanently to something which might, right, which isn't uh, established. And you also, you know, got to be really careful not to say things you don't fully understand. Not to, you know, not to pass it permanently on things you don't fully understand. If you can, you know, it's a, it's a problem because you also can't say that only people who really, really know biology can pass in these issues because then you end up being controlled by a very, very narrow group, a very, very narrow group that can't, that isn't accountable. And that has its issues also, as we discovered in the brain death uh, controversy. Um, you know, that uh, the claims of scientific authority in the context of Allah can also be very misleading. It, it could be. And again, a cautionary tale would be, you know, the Red Zener's Trelis as well. I mean, there you also what? have, you know, there there you have, you know, the, the world was astounded by, you know, uh, the efforts, the energies of this Hasidic Shurebe, who, you know, seemed to have had have his finger on 
all what was going on in biology, et cetera, you know, and the cuttlefish seemed to seem to check all the boxes. And, you know, you could tell that there was this, you know, most people think, oh, it's the stodgy, um, it was just the stodgy, uh, uh, calcified attitude of the rabbis who didn't want to be macabre, like the Beis Halevi and others, but, you know, they they were correct. Um, they were correct. All these, you know, the Hamlin Rayas that he was bringing, that this is the Tchelis, we have to go out and get them on our tzitzis, and et cetera. And wear them on Shabbos. Uh, most people would say if you would wear the cuttlefish on your tzitzis today, you'd probably you're you're, you're chayiv for uh, you'd be chayiv achatis in the in the base Mikdash was brought. So I think that's another example of um, you know, of of being careful. Again, I don't know if that means we should all be in the base Alevi's camp. Where okay, this is new. I don't know. I'm not going to say anything. I think you need to have some you need to have the courage, but you're right. Sometimes even the even even if you, whatever you would paskin then, you'd have to have the courage to say they were wrong too, um, and uh, and and not to be coward by names, which is I think what happens, Ravarie, uh when this gets into becoming a polemical thing. Oh, how dare you argue with Tzoliezer? What do you mean? I've got this, that, this, this, and that. Because when it becomes part of the public forum, and it's not the Tamirah Chachamim, all they're seeing is the list of names and sources. And they're not doing any of the due diligence of of, of the halachic work that you uh, are, are dedicated to, and which, of course, is a, a schus to you and, and your mishpocha. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.